You guys waiting for me? <laughs> Where's the girls? Yeah, they're girls. I love you. I love you too. Thank you, buddy. My I knew it was going to be fall this time. <laughs> okay. All right. My turn, okay? All right. So last week we talked about prayer and how everyone can, how you guys can all pray, right? If I were to ask you, what do we usually end our prayers with right before the amen? What would you say? Right. Jesus' name. Yeah, we say we pray in Jesus' name. I see those dinosaurs from Jesus pray. Right, you? Okay. Okay, um, yeah, we say in Jesus' name we pray, and you know, and I want you to think about why we say that. And there's a number of reasons, and I'm going to talk about one this morning, and then talk about another one next week. So you, you can have homework. You can go ask your parents <clears throat> what the other reason may be. But one reason is that we say we pray in Jesus' name because we recognize, we understand that the only reason we can really come to God in prayer is because of what Jesus did on the cross, right? We know when Jesus said it was finished, what happened? What happened to the curtain in the temple? Do you remember? It was ripped, right? And that that meant that sinful man could now enter into the presence of a holy God. And so when we say in Jesus' name, one of the aspects of it is that we recognize that we can come before a holy God in prayer, even even, even though we're sinners, right? I think so, <laughs> if you say so. Uh, that's fine. Why don't we pray? How's that? Good. <laughs> Father God, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you in prayer. Lord, may we never take that for granted. May we be just like over, overjoyed at the, the, the awesome privilege you have, you have given us to come to you in prayer not just in prayer, but Lord, come to you um, as one. I mean, we know one day we will be with you uh, and see you um, see you fully and know you fully. And, and yet, Lord, we know that we can come to you in prayer right now and that we can uh, pray for things that, um, that, we, that you put on our heart, hopefully things, Lord, that are your will and your desire. And we just thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and do that. And and we ask, Lord, that we might get, bring you glory through it. And, Lord, we just thank you for this awesome opportunity and privilege to pray and that we can say, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen? Amen. All right. I have it for Tom. All right, buddy. Please open your Bibles to Romans. We are back. Romans chapter 1. Yes, we're starting over. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ as given to us through the Bible, specifically through Paul's letter to the Romans. Look at chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is each and every one of us, every living human being, everyone who has ever lived has lived under God's wrath, rightly deserved, because we all take things that God created to point us to his glory, and we worship those things instead of God. And we build our lives around those created things instead of worship, true worship to God. And we all put ourselves under his wrath. Romans 3.23. I'm going to go through Romans, so you feel free to flip over there. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. This is the condition of every single one of us before Christ and everyone out there on this earth, that is the bad news, that we've all put ourselves, made ourselves God's enemies and put ourselves under his wrath. We have all sinned, therefore we all deserve his punishment. Romans six twenty three says, for the wages of sin is death. On top of that, there's no amount of good, there's no amount of law keeping that we can do to make up for the sins of the heart, let alone the sins that come out of our mouths and our actions, but the sins of the heart that we have already committed. We've sinned against a holy and righteous and creator God who created us to worship him. These aren't little things. What we can do is nothing compared to what we have done. We cannot by our own doing make ourselves right with God and put ourselves in right standing with God. We cannot be righteous in his sight and therefore we are all doomed and we all need help and we need God's help. We need his mercy. We've made ourselves his enemy with no way out that we can accomplish on our own can't undo what we've done, and we can't follow 
the law, even the, the word that he's given us, we can't keep up with his righteous law. We're all tempted, and because of the desires of our heart, we chase after those temptations. Even if we could, it's not good enough to save us. We need a way to be right with God that does not depend on us in a way in which God is still just and still punishes sin. So how can we do that? How can God still be just and punish sin and we get right with that God, those of us who have sinned against him? We need his mercy, but we also need his grace. Look at Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to take the punishment, to live the, the righteous life that all of us are supposed to live, the sin, sinless life, the God-glorifying life, the God-worshiping life that all of us are supposed to live. And he took the punishment on the cross, that separation from God, that God turning his face away, him crying out, why have you forsaken me, right? Took that for us in our place. So if you believe in him, you believe, you trust in that, you put your hope in that, that punishment, he became a propitiation, which means he, he appeased God's wrath for you, that wrath that you deserve. He took that on the cross. Just believe. You put your faith. You turn from your sins. You put your hope in him. You surrender your life, and you now live your life for him, that you will be made right in God's eyes. A person who could no way on their own, put themselves in right standing with God because of Jesus and what he's done. And now your faith that God gifted to you by grace, you can live forever in right standing with God. What a gospel gift that is for all of us. This happens only through faith. We can't work to earn it <clears throat> or we could boast that it was our own doing, our our coming to saving faith was our wising up, making ourselves right with God. So we can't earn it. It comes only through faith in Jesus, a faith that is given to us. We don't desire it. God has to change our hearts. Give us a heart to desire 
to want to have our sins forgiven. Give us a heart desire to want to follow Jesus. God didn't make us clean ourselves up first and come to him. He saved us by faith while we were still in our sin. Flip over to chapter 5. Verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And that's where we live as believers. We live in that more than that. We live in that more than that salvation. That is the beginning, the coming of our faith. But then as we live and as we walk and as we grow and as we mature in our faith, we live in that more than that. This sanctification, yeah, we're growing in in Christ's likeness, but we're also growing in our hope in our faith, in our dependence, our trust in who God is and how great he is. Flip over to chapter 6. Now that we live in this grace that we were saved by, this wonderful grace that God has given to us, is it okay for us then to go living like we lived before? We were living for ourselves before Jesus saved us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. He gave us life. Is it okay then to go back, now that we have our heaven ticket punched, to go back to the way things were? Paul says at the beginning of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you come to saving faith in Christ, something changes in you. You no longer walk the way you walked before. You no longer walk in the ways of the world. By the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit, you walk in newness of life. It is different. Your life is now lived for Jesus in every way possible. But we sin. Even though we still sin, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. The Holy Spirit in us doesn't let us stay in that sin, but brings us to repentance and brings us back to the foot of the cross and reminds us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We're forgiven. 
We walk in forgiveness. And chapter 8 taught us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit we set our minds not on earthly desires of the flesh, but on the things of the Holy Spirit. We do so because we are now God's children, adopted. We get to call him Father. We are fellow heirs of the kingdom with Jesus Christ. We live with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But as we live on this earth, as you all know, we face daily battles. We face trials. We face temptations and distractions from Jesus and struggles. And in those and through those, the children of God, through the Holy Spirit, cry out to God. We suffer with Jesus. We don't go through these things on our own, but we depend and we cry out to Jesus. We're not like the world. We don't then go look for earthly solutions to our heavenly problems. Sometimes even though we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intervenes for us. Why? Because we belong to God. We are his. That's what he put that spirit inside you for, to constantly point you back to Jesus. Even in your prayers, we belong to him. And because we belong to him, guess what? All things will work out for your good. All things for good. Everything you go through in life. We love God. He's called us to be his. In fact, he predestined us for this. And because he who predestines calls, and he who calls justifies, and he who justifies glorifies, we have this hope in God forever. And that's where we are. And that's where we live. And that is the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ and what we live with as believers. And then Paul's going to come to verse 31. And he's going to say in 831, right at the beginning, what then Shall we say to these things? Everything that I just talked about, that glorious truth of who you are and what you were and what God has done through the blood of Jesus Christ and what God is still doing and the hope you still have and the power and the spirit you have in you constantly points us back to Jesus the fact that God predestined and called and justified and adopted you as his children, you are heirs of the kingdom, and you have this hope, and he guarantees that he will bring you to him. What shall we say to these things, Paul is saying? Knowing all this, having understood and experienced God's loving and saving mercy and his grace, how should we respond to all of this? From God, what shall we say to these things? This passage, this ends of Roman, the end of Romans 8 here, is a question and response sort of thing for all 
Paul has discussed. And we want to think then, knowing all these things, believing all these things, trusting all these things, how should I live? How should that influence how I live my life when I'm at home, either alone or I'm with my family or when I go to work or when I interact with other people or when the things of the world happen, good, bad, indifferent, and the struggles and the trials and the tragedies of life happen. And I know all this from Romans 1 through 8.30. How should I live my life? Notice the we. And what shall we say? And the us. And the following part that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We must not treat it as if God has the same disposition towards all of his creation, saved or not. He loves all of us. He desires. He's willing for every single human being who lives to come to saving faith, and he will save them, and he will call them children, and they can call him Father. The offer of salvation is Free. This is why we do Christianity Explored. It's not just something that pastor thought, hey, this is fun to, for us to do. Let me harp on you every January and February so that you'll sign up and do it. He's called us to go and share the gospel. We have made a way for us to bring people in here and share through video. That's why we're doing it. We are, we are trying. We're offering out this offer of salvation for people to come to saving faith. God desires all people. He desires all types of people, Jew and Gentiles, to come to saving faith. And we freely give this message out to the whole world. But don't think for a second that God doesn't have a special, loving, protective disposition or favor to his children. We are his children. We have a special disposition towards our kids. We were talking about this same thing in Sunday school. Scott stole my thunder. I mentioned how I love all these little children who come up, sit up here, and pray. And I would do anything for you. I truly would. But there's a special affection in my heart for my own children. So what shall we, what shall we, his children, saved by grace, say about or respond to God's saving grace? Should it just be a matter of the facts? It, it, are the things that I just read from Romans 1 through 8.30, are those just some facts, some things to know, some things to consider as you go about your life, some really good Bible verses to, to memorize? Is it just nice to know, or should it elicit more from us? Should it do more in me than just knowing these things? In context, Paul's talking about 
How should we respond in our trials and our sufferings knowing all of these things? And I'm going to challenge you this week, this year. Think about the big picture in the gospel and how it fits in more often. We, it's so easy to, to zone in on myself in my own life and think about how the, the rest of the world fits in, revolves around me. That's easy, isn't it? It's easy for, for all of us. We need to step back from that. Remember the gospel. Remember the lowly state that we came from when we were still his enemies, when we were under his wrath, when we could not call him father, when we denied him, when we rejected him. We need to remember that and remember what he has done. Remember his mercy. Remember the grace shown to you and the benefits of being a child of God and his special favor and disposition to you, toward you, absolutely offered to all the world. But he loves you. You. Now, this is not a general term. If your faith, if he's given you that new heart, he's caused you to be born again. He's granted you faith. He's granted you rep repentance. I want you to think those were your specific sins that he died for on the cross. And he loves you specifically. You are his child. Yeah, we think about it generally, but think about it personally. Paul's going to answer this question, what shall we say to these things, with another question as the answer. What then shall we say to these things? And he's going to say, here's what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, if the creator God is for us, if the wrathful God who will punish all of his enemies is for us, if the all-powerful God of love is for us, who could possibly be against us? A big question comes for you here in the form of the if. And kids, I want you to hear me clearly right now. You can't just inherit mommy and daddy's faith. You have to believe. This has to be real for you. The gospel, knowing that you're a sinner who needs Jesus, putting your trust and your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, turning from your sins, living your life for him, that has to be from you. I can't give it to you. Just coming to church can't do it for you. Just being raised in a Christian family can't do it for you. It has to be real for you. That if has to be true for you. The promise that if God is for us, who could be against us, comes only to those on the right side of that if. Because if God is not for us, 
We already read all that. The wrath of God is being revealed. Everyone can be against you. Is God for you? This is your call to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he is for you then, all of his promises are for you. All of his protection from the enemy, from eternal death, all of it, all of it is for you. All things work together for your good. If God is for you, the one who he predestined, then God called if God called you, God justified you. And if he did justify you, he will glorify you and bring you to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If God is for you, then nothing can be against you. Nothing that we sing about, right? Nothing. No power of hell, no scheme of man. Nothing can be against you. Nothing can stop no condemnation. Yes, things will happen in this life that will cause pain, that will be difficult. They aren't real. They shouldn't be dismissed. But they should remind us, we should cling to this passage in those times, that God is for me. And if this is happening and if this is going through, I'm going through this in my life, then I can trust God that all of this is working out for my good. Don't confuse riches and good health. Lots of possessions or wonderful relationships as this, as that, as if that's the sign that God is for me. If I have all these things, lots of people don't have those things and are closer to God than we could dream of being. As if any of those things went away, it would signify that God isn't for you anymore. Maybe God's removed his blessing because I lost my job. Or maybe God's removed this blessing because he denied me this relationship. Or I lost this money or this relationship. Or because my health is failing that maybe God isn't for me. His for you is better than your for you. His for you has eternity in mind. This little blip, this little millisecond of a life that we live right now on the great timeline of eternity. This little pinch of suffering, as great as it may be, powerful as it may feel, is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us with the God who is for us. If he is for you, who could possibly be against you? Who could possibly get in the way of you and God? He who is with us is more than those who are with them. I love that passage from 2 Kings. An armed great army shows up. There's Elisha, the young man. And he says, don't worry. You don't see it, right? There's an army of angels. 
but he who is with us is greater. So who could thwart his plans? That great God who is on your side. Or who could make him, or what could you possibly do to make him give up on you? Who could snatch victory from his hands? And the answer that is implied is no one. Nobody. That's the implied answer to that. No one can. No one can come against the children of God. Nothing can happen to you unless God allows it. And if he allows it, then it is for your good. And we trust in him and we hope in him. Yes, they can take your money, your job. They can steal your possessions and they can cause physical harm to you. They can even take things to the point to where they take your life. But what is really going on? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28 to 30, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And he's not talking about Satan. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore you are more of more value than sparrows. God cares about every single part of you, every aspect of you, more than you care about you. How many things have gone on just outside of our church? Bugs crawling on the ground, worms, maybe birds flying around, things happening that God is sovereign over and cares about happening. All these things just going around. Yet you are infinitely more valuable to him than all those things. Do you not think that the things that happen in your life are going to matter to him who loves you, who cares for you, who sent his son to die for you. God is for you. Who could be against? What could be against? You're included in that That who could be against. So some, some application. Number one. And kids, this is what I talked to you about today. But it goes for everyone. You better work out that if in the if God is for you. There's nothing more important in life than working out that if, than pondering, considering, praying about the gospel and what it means for your life and for your eternity the forgiveness of your sins that are needed in a life lived for Jesus. Better work out that if. If God is for you, my call, my hope, my prayer is that you surrender your life to Jesus today. 
Number two, hold on to this promise, church. Ask yourself daily. When you wake up, write a note by your bedside. Put it on your phone if that's the first thing you grab. I had a, I'm, I'm horrible in the morning. My brain doesn't work for like two hours. I'm messing up the coffee. I'm, I had to put a note. We, we went out of town. I had to go pick the dog up this morning. I had to put a note on the door. Get dog. Remind myself. Because <laughs> I would have forgot. Remind yourself. Ask yourself daily, what shall I say to these things? Recount the gospel. Recount where the gutter that God found you in. Recount the grace that has been shown. Recount the miracles that have been given in your life, especially if you're going through some hard things right now. But if you're going through good things, absolutely as well. Recount these things to yourself daily and say, today, as I look at my calendar, as I look at my schedule, as I look at the things getting ready to go on in my life, what shall I say to these things? How does the gospel affect how I'm going to go and live my life today? Am I going to ignore it? Am I going to push it down and be hardened and figure it out in the world and rely on something in the world? Or do I really believe this? Does it matter to me? What shall I say to these things? And then also remind yourself, if God is for me, who can be against me? What can be against me? Can Satan? Can sickness? Can this world? Some caveats here. Doesn't mean you're right in all that you do because you are a child of God and if God is for you, who can be against you? It means God is for you in all that you do. Even when you mess up and you make mistakes and you sin, he is for you. He forgives you. That forgiveness lasts a lifetime. That spirit to bring you back in conviction to him is him being for you. Second, as I said, you are included in the who can be against. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies, and we need to get out of our own way of the gospel. And we don't need to remind ourselves, when it comes to the who can snatch me out of his hands, I'm included in that. He cares more about me than I care about me, or I would not be saved. Do not fear. Do not fear in this life. There's lots of things in this world that we can be fearful over. We can be anxious over. We can bring, be brought to worry over. But passages like this remind us he is in control and I am his and he is mine. So do not fear. God is for you. Do not fear Satan. Do not fear evil. Do not fear the terrors of the night. Do not fear the world. Do not fear the government. Do not fear people of the world. Do not fear yourself. Do not fear the things that might happen, the sicknesses, the dangers, the things that 
could possibly happen. God is for you. Before we're going to take communion, I'm going to read you Psalm 91. You can flip there if you want, but I'm going to start now. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, <clears throat> excuse me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That is your God. That is who is for you if you are in Christ Jesus. We're going to celebrate the great God is for us celebration by celebrating the how it came to be that he is for us, meaning the death of his son. He is for us not by our own doing, not by any will of man, but because of the blood of his son, and you are united to him because of Jesus Christ. So if God is for you, if that if has been answered, yes, if you have put your hope and trust in him, take communion with us today. And as we take communion today, I want you to think about this verse, and I want you to consider two things. Number one, as we take the bread, it signifies his body given up for us. This is the these things that we shall consider. What shall I say to these things? What shall I say to Jesus giving up his body for me? Consider the gospel here as we take the bread. And as we drink the cup, it signifies the covenant that we have with him in his blood and through his blood. And this is the response, the freedom, the commitment, the life we now live in and through the redemption of his blood. What does this, what shall I say to these things of all he has done for me? And as we drink the cup, what does this covenant that I'm drinking, that it symbolizes, what does this mean for my life now? Consider what it means. Consider if he is for us, he who gave up his son, he who gave up his life, and you now live in him, what or who could possibly 
be against. So I'm going to ask the men come forward, and I want to ask you to consider those things as we take communion together.